Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today and they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is microbiologist and climate scientist Walter Jean. Walter is one of the world experts in regenerative agriculture. He's been working for decades on the world's soils, how to feed the world more efficiently, and fascinatingly, how the process of regenerative agriculture could contribute to global cooling. Walter says regenerative agriculture is all about water and hydrology drives 95% of the world's heating. What he explains on the episode about how capturing carbon in soil and then how it becomes water molecules, which are then released into the air, which then form clouds, which deflect the sun's radiation is absolutely fascinating. I'm so thrilled to be able to present his work to you today. Not only does he explain the science behind regenerative agriculture and its relationship to cooling, but he also explains how people can feed themselves in cities with urban agriculture. He explains how much soil, how much land we actually need and how much of the world's current land systems we need to re-green, he says in order to stop the 1.5 degree overshoot. This is an episode that is filled with such promise and hope for the next decade, and I really hope you enjoy it. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love the episode, support the podcast at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. Interview transcripts are now available for both paid subscribers and patrons, and a huge thank you to everyone who's supporting the project. Why is it that after 50 years of hard evidence from Charles Keeling, you know, here's the actual CO2 greenhouse effect. After 50 years, we're still in this thing rather yeah. than looking at the real situation. We're really still chasing symptoms rather than the cause, but we're running out of time, you know? And so you've got to ask yourself, well, hey, what's been the politics of 50 years of climate misinformation, but also false contexting of the situation, right? Absolutely. You know, like, very narrow and very limited context rather than looking at the actual cause rather than the symptom. Absolutely. One of the things I find so fascinating at the moment, um, are, it's actually a couple of things I know that you've brought up with other people, like um, the focus on uh, carbon, you know, this kind yeah. of panicked focus on carbon. It's like, well, what about water? I mean, good luck, you know, yeah, having a yeah. planet that has no yeah. water. Even this demand that we stop, you know, you have to stop using fossil fuels overnight. You, you can't. You actually no, cannot. Because, well, put this back. Do you want to go back to 500 million people on the planet, Max? So have we got, you know, 7.5 billion volunteers for Harikari? Well, no way. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. So I still wonder not only, you know, how did um, the science get pushed to one side for so long? But even amongst activist groups or even amongst um, those that are yep. meant to be peddling the right kind of information, why the uh, messages become so focused on the things that are A, have very minimal impact or B, are actually impossible, 
you know, so you're getting yeah. all of this energy directed towards things essentially keeping yeah. businesses. Look, and there's very clear answers. There's really fully substantiated evidence of the stoke, why that's happened. Mm. Uh, it's a very, very major story, but in a sense, we don't want to raise it now because it'll be used to, um, to basically negate climate change that we need to do something. So we're really, I mean, I'm really sort of, uh, conflicted because I'm saying, look, here's a smarter, natural way, but at the same time, I'm challenging the status quo and people will then use that to say, oh, well, look, the status quo is all garbage, right? We don't, you know, like they're not going to say, hey, we've got to embrace this alternative. They simply say we've been misled and then we've got another 10 years of inertia because of, you know, the past mistakes. But look, it all started basically Stockholm, 1972. We had the Global Earth Summit, you know, major thing coming together, limits to growth the whole ecological consciousness, I guess, 72, well before your time, I expect. And yeah, look, and we had about 20 very, very genuine, serious uh, research years on earth system science, where this whole evidence of, yeah, hydrology drives 95% of the heat dynamics of the blue planet, all that was there, all documented. NASA, you know, this is not, not just by individuals, but NASA, everybody. But then there was a political decision in the late eighties, early nineties to say, Hey, this is challenging too much of the status quo. Let's now look at just slow. I mean, can we reduce fossil fuel emissions, CO2 emissions, and basically through the IPCC process, can we just focus on that? And then modeling, you know, sort of computer modeling of what would be the scenarios in 2100? And we've really wasted 30 years since then, just in that narrow focus. And of course, all the governments, we've spent 80 billion US now on that black hole tunnel doing research there. But of course, they're not funding research elsewhere, right? Mm. So we've really been in this black hole for 30 years, just CO2. Uh, forward model projections, scenarios, but also the scenarios. It, it's self-defeating deliberately because by definition, the further you look, there's more error. And of course, in the policy, people say, oh, with that level of error, we can't possibly make decisions. We do to do more research. And so you're just kicking the can down the road continually rather than saying, hey, we're responsible. We have agency, mm. but it's all about land management. The other nice thing, if you use CO2, then it's a global crisis. It's a global imperative. No individual nation can solve that. We have to have international consensus with today, you know, Ukraine, it's an oxymoron. <laughs> okay. And so they're saying, oh, we always need international consensus. We've had 26 COP meetings talking about international consensus and yet the real issue is no, it's responsibility, ground level, every area, I mean, every square meter of land that you manage governs both carbon emissions, but also the carbon drawdown potential. So rather than saying that we are responsible, we have responsibility, ability, mm. and we've got to get our finger out, do it. 
that's been deferred by, hang on, here's, we need this international consensus. Well, there seems to be a lack of understanding of how um, system science works at a policymaking decision uh, level. Because, I mean, to me, having interviewed all these experts around the world, yeah. it would seem that um, you need to create an interlocking system of responsibility, of empowerment, of whatever. Um, because what we're seeing at the moment is that um, those in powerful places don't want to make yep. decisions and then those on the ground as well are saying well it's not on us to make those decisions you know you're the real emitters there's sort of this conflict in the climate movement about whose fault it really is whereas actually if you try and take like a systems looking approach it's like well we're all yeah. responsible for the planet yeah. aren't we we're all part of the ecosystem <laughs> i think you're being too kind you see because i mean i've <laughs> very senior levels you know before i retired and no look they're very well aware they're very well aware, but politics is always short-term, three-year term, yeah, yeah. opportunism, expediency, and market and spin, right? And so in that short-term context, you know, defining the problem that we're responsible, knowing that they're impotent in that three years to do anything meaningful, but it wouldn't be accepted. Mm. So they've just basically picked on this really externalization argument okay it's co2 we've got the scientists working on it we're having meetings we're talking talking we're just i mean they're, they're, it's perfection and externalization responsibility but it's deliberate right so it's not that they're ignorant they know it all i mean oh, yeah. things that but each individual nation each individual policy area says hey that's too big for my plate let's just join the call for international consensus well it is too big for any one nation's plate in a sense um it's too big for any one leader this is why i think again back to that systems of ecosystems and ecosystems yeah. of, of citizenship of what it means to be a civilian of what it means to live on this planet if you break yeah. it down into making every single person responsible and then increasing responsibility based on the levels of you know, socioeconomic precarity, the more privilege that you have, the more responsibility yeah. you can take, leaning into the benefits of the white middle class nature of the environmental movement, which does allow people to sort of give more rather than denigrating it. You know, there's all these sorts of um, uh, ways that we could be thinking about creating a better system, it seems to yeah. me, to tackle it. But you see what happened, and it was you guys, UK, Hadley Center, 20 years ago, they had a very significant conference, right? Joachim Schellenhuber was leading it or, you know, coordinating it. But it was really saying, look, the whole crisis is about dangerous hydrological climate extremes. You know, it's the hurricanes, it's the floods, cyclones, aridification, droughts, wildfires, right? So the things that are impacting people and biosystem, not just impacting collapsing, are hydrological. You and I, we, I mean, like we die at 10,000 parts CO2 in the air, right? That's when submariners die. You breathe out 1,000 parts per million CO2 in the breath that you're breathing out. So it's not CO2 that's going to actually be the problem, mm. but dangerous hydrological. And they were, or they are intensifying now. Mm. Okay. And yeah. so again, that is responsibility. What are we doing about it? 
And of course, nothing we, because we've deferred it all onto the oxymoron international consensus, right? CO2. So for 20 years, in a sense, we've even denied that action and see hydrological extremes impact locally. You know, they kill people locally here and now everywhere, wildfires, et cetera, right? But they don't want to admit that that's climate change because that's just an act of God that, you know, randomly occurs. Uh-uh, it's us. And again, it's the externalization of recognition and responsibility, deliberately so, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so for 20 years, we've actually denied even the major impacts, which again, hydrological, not CO2. Right. Before we get into the science of this, yep. um, I have one question on, on the politics. You said that there was a, dis- yep. a political decision made in the 80s that skewed yep. everybody's attention towards emissions, yep. etc. What do you think that that decision was and who was it taken by? Oh, it was very simple. Margaret Thatcher was very, very leading in 79, you know, onward saying, yes, this is real. Uh, picked up on the Earth Summit story to say, I mean, like the Stockholm Earth Summit and said, yeah, we've got to do this work. But oh, re- yeah. they realized then by after 20 years that, okay, this is really fundamental changing our economic modus operandi, right? And of course, then the answer is no, let's rather blame something simple. The Americans were very, very keen. Look, we've got to market this to a population. We need a guy in a black hat and a white hat. You know, we're a good guy, bad guy, yeah. cause and effect. And also let's, if we have that bad guy, CO2, we can actually say, look, let's do research, externalize it to the international consensus argument. So it was a very convenient political out. And so when they formed the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it was more or less that consensus to say, right, let's externalize this. Sure, we'll put money in it, we'll do the research, but we're not taking the responsibility on our own grassroots level. Because of the impact that it would have had on economies and economic systems. Well, it would have forced the vested interest status quo to fundamentally recognize their responsibility. It would have forced all the externalities that we have in our economy, you know, like mm-hmm. that. I mean, we produce food, but we use 10 calories of oil energy for every calorie of any industrial food energy we produce. It would have forced all those onto the balance sheet, right? Mm. So no, it's far nicer to say, look, here's a bad guy, CO2 and let's research it and put it into the international consensus oxymoron. Kick the can down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so interesting, isn't it? Whenever you get into any conversation about anything important, it all comes down to vested interests, no matter what it's about. And exactly, because who's actually taking the championship and the truth of the actual planetary process rather than yeah, the short-term economic, political expedient, right? Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the short-term are always those political processes, but in the long run, of course, systems collapse. Mm-hmm. Yes, and system colla- systems collapsing and growing, interestingly, because I, I interviewed yep. um, Jessie Henshaw about this, and she was adamant that we have to understand, even on the, the side that want to protect the planet, 
systems have to grow. It's very normal oh, yeah. for them to grow. And then they That's have to be allowed to collapse. And as a microbiologist, every, every growth is balanced by decomposition and cycles, right? So the, the health is actually that cycle. We don't like the death element of it or the decomposition. We think that's bad. But in fact, in there is our actually salvation because that efficiency of cycling allows us to keep the thing growing, but actually move it better and better and the regeneration story is very much how do we harness some of that cycling opportunity. Mm. Right. Let's talk about water and then we'll talk about regenerative agriculture. Um, yeah. And I'm just going to start this. I'm going to hopefully sp spring us um, by, I, I'm sure you you saw this. I think it was about, it must have been about a year ago now. Uh, Kamala Harris, Vice President of the United States, said yep. offhand at a conference, I think she was actually leaving the conference, she said offhand to uh, junket journalists, well, in you know the future, by 2050, wars will not be fought over oil. They will be fought over water. Absolutely. And this is right across the world. The only thing she's wrong, it's not 2050. Uh, bring it down to 2030. Okay. And, and that's absolutely right. Cause basically, I mean, all over the planet, whether it's the Oganella Delta in the America, whether it's India, we've just been exploiting water resources, China desperately trying to convert the rivers that are feeding Southeast Asia from the Tibet plateau up North, you know, water is the thing. Look, water is critical for life. Water is critical for all our biochemistry. While, of course, the, this is a blue planet, we've got abundant water. The amount of available fresh water is really precarious. But we have to re, I mean, again, we have to rethink the whole hydrology, which we can, but that's critical. And of course, the other thing is in, in the context of Kamala's uh, problem or statement, Mark Twain said that 100 years ago, whiskey is for drinking. Water is for fighting over. <laughs> so that, that's one of Twain's, you know, like historical marks. And it's absolutely true. And China, for example, it's got basically 17, 18% of the world population. It's got 7% of the arable land or the agricultural land. And water-wise, it's going to be the key limiting thing, both from pollution and over-extraction, both surface and groundwater. The World Bank's put 50,000 large dams, put money funding for 50,000 large dams around the world. And hey, it hasn't worked. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't function. Yeah. So no, you're absolutely right. Uh, and worse still with climate change, see, it's actually, we're going to have more rain because there's more evaporation, but it'll be in extreme storms, but also large areas will be aridifying and desertifying, largely because of the soil is degraded. So in Europe, the whole Iberian Peninsula, the Mediterranean, it'll be a combination of aridification and wildfires, and you will see in the next 10 years systems collapsing hydrologically, right? Syria is a classic, Syria, the Fertile Crescent, cradle of Western agriculture, 8,000 years ago. And what did you have? Five years ago, millions of Syrian people 
having walked off their fields because of eradication, no water, into Aleppo, Damascus, social crisis, and of course then into Europe. And, and, and that's really the biggest threat we've got. And all the defense people that they, they freak out about, I mean, they really won't because they know no amount of hardware can stop that social collapse if that happens. I mean, like we're talking to the people from US Defense Department and it's actually rebuilding the resilience of biosystems hydrologically that is the essence of keeping social stability. The Arab Spring, seven missed meals is all that separates social stability and chaos. Seven missed meals. That's interesting. Social stability and chaos. That's the dividing line. The mm -hmm. dividing line, whether you can have the seven meals is largely water and, and social stability so you can keep on growing things, right? Okay, Kamala's right, but also defense departments are contacting you. They're they're aware of the issue. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Look, U.S. defense, you know, the, the senior generals, think tanks, you know, no, no, yeah. they've been looking at threats and risks and you know issues, scenarios, and without any question, way above terrorism or anything like that. It is this, um, yeah, the the actual resilience, buffering, and viability of biosystems, right? And Biden's just put $200 billion into a program to help reinforce that. Actually, it just came out the other day. Here is USDA really investing big time in resilience. You know, how do we build resilient biosystems? Buffering. So they have looked onto it, but obviously it's a question of now practically what do they do? Mostly when you start throwing money at it, you get a lot of, Quangos and overheads and agencies all, you know, mm. building empires, feudal empires on it. Mm. Whether the action is on the ground or not is still open question, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is there. Look, it's, it's interesting, Rochelle. I've been, okay, I retired 15 years ago. I'm a scientist, right? I retired 15 years ago, set up Healthy Soils Australia. I worked for 10 years since retirement with a guy, Michael Jeffrey, who's our ex-governor general, right? Queen's representative. He's retired. He retired as well. And yeah, we, we walked into any prime minister, any minister, no troubles. They all know. They all know. But of course, they all say, well, look, fa fantastic, Michael. Glad you're doing this. Uh, I've got to focus on the next election. I've got to focus on, you know, these um, expediency. We can't address that. And, uh, See, that's a story all over the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, um, again, I'm all for sort of symbiotic relationships with things, and I firmly believe in democracies, real democracies, not oh yeah, democracies. <laughs> in real democracies, we get the government yeah. that we deserve. I mean, you know, like it's the worst of all things, but it's the only things. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, I mean, this is part of why I make this podcast. There's so much information out there. It, you know. We just want to package it and make it digestible. And if you're yep. fortunate enough to live in a democratic country, educate yourself. <laughs> absolutely. Because we're one of the few that can do that, mm. we must. Yes, mm. absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, what's, um, what do you think is going to happen over the next decade then to the world's uh, water systems and to our soil? Are there pockets that you're particularly concerned about or is it generally well, going to be a nightmare? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're going to 
and let's be positive. I'm going to, we're going to regenerate them. We're going to rehydrate them. We're okay. going to re-green them. And we will have an equitable, socially just uh, biosystem and society for the 10 billion people by 2050. All right. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> but look, no, no, look, that's what, yes. But the, the beautiful thing, Rochelle, we, we can do it, right? We mm. can do it. Be, I mean, like, okay, I, I, I'm old, but also microbiology is very old. We go back 3.8 billion years, you know, the first life on the planet. And that's exactly what nature did. You see, 420 million years ago, there was no life on land. It was just rock, hard, dry rock, life in the oceans. But the mineral nutrients that were essential for life were coming, leaching from the land. So nature said, hey, I'm going to go onto the land and solubilize more nutrients because that was the limiting factor. So fungi grew from the estuarine edges onto the rock, started solubilizing that rock for nutrients, transporting it back. And of course, in doing so, leaving behind organic detritus, that organic detritus was able to then hold water, created the first soils. Soil is just mineral detritus plus organic detritus created the first soils and created the first terrestrial hydrological system. Nice. Very rapidly in a space of, you know, a couple of hundred million years, not even that, hundred million years, you had the whole earth's land surface vegetated initially from fungi, lichens, mosses, ferns, cycads, gymnosperms, etc., extending all over the planet, fundamentally changing the atmosphere fundamentally changing the hydrological cycle and cooling the planet. So nature's, I mean, it's just exquisite. It's simple. You can't escape it. And yeah, we can harness that. We can accelerate that. We don't have 420 million years, of course. You're, you've got 10 years, Rochelle, you know, because like we've got this decade, right? We've got to mm -hmm. do it. We can. And it's rebuilding the earth's soil carbon sponge. Mm-hmm just as nature did for 20 million years ago. Uh, is, the, is the soil carbon sponge the fact that soil retains carbon dioxide? It's, it's more significant than that. Right. The, it, certainly the soil, the sponge is, okay, it's plants fixing carbon from the air, photosynthesis, right? And it's, again, this is a, the life growth and death, right? And we all worry, I mean, we all know why we all excited that we we're growing more, we're growing more, we've got bigger yields, growing plants, but what matters is biodegradation. You see what matters, what happens to every gram of carbon, the plants fix on this planet. Mm. And there's only two things that can happen to it. It can either oxidize, burn back to CO2 mm -hmm. or microbes can convert it into stable soil carbon. Perfect. Is that simple? <gasps> it's just so powerful and elegant. But see what I'm saying here is the growth cycle. That's only part of the equation, photosynthesis, green. But where the strategic smarts are is what happens to every gram. Does it burn or does it biodegrade? Mm. Is it fire or is it fungi? And if you're backing biodegradation and fungi, you're creating stable soil carbon, humus, and that then create, it's a, it then has a force multiplier, 20-fold force multiplier. Every gram of carbon we can put into the soil 
can hold up to up to 20 grams of extra water in that soil. Oh, wow. Wow. You see, it's a, it's a positive feedback force multiplier. You, you know, you've got a well, baby's nappy, right? How heavy is a baby's nappy when it's dry and how heavy is it when it's wet? Strong reference for me, but. Uh... <laughs> but uh, well, uh, what I'm saying, it's the same, same process, right? Mm. And now, now we've got that sponge holding water. When you think of it as a 20-fold water retention, it can sustain the longevity of green growth for so much longer. And so there's bioproductivity. And the other nice thing, it's, it's longevity. I mean, we've never talked about that in science. We always said, can we grow more faster, mm. bigger? But no, no, it's all about growing longer. You know, we get a rain, do, do we waste it all down the culverts, the pavements, create a flood and erosion, sea level rise, or do we soak it into the soil, extend the longevity of green? And again, nature get this 500% positive feedback in more plant growth. You see, so nature really is so exquisitely beautiful because she can basically take one drop of water or bit of, one gram of carbon, make the sponge, hold the water, and she's getting multiplier effects on multiplier effects. All right. Okay. Now, what happens on farmland, for example? What happens if you then cut down crops and, and rip them out and then and replant whatever? Like, is this on sort of natural I, I, soil? or? But, um, this is, you're asking the serious story, right? So if we just say go back 8,000 years, after the last ice age, you know, the climate Holocene had warmed up. Basically, the whole 14 billion hectares of land on Earth was basically vegetated, right? Forests and grasslands. And along comes Homo hubris or Homo sapien. And we get smart to say, look, we've got burning. Yes, yeah? see, so we can burn agriculture to exploit. We can cultivate. And initially, we were just minuscule, right? Like, 8,000, 6,000 years ago, compared to nature, we were just ants, you know, it wasn't significant. Mm -hmm. But really over the last 300 years, but particularly over the last 80 years since the Second World War, because we've got oil energy, yeah, we were able to, again, have a massive uh, escalation of our impact on the soil, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got now oil that we can drive big machines so we can cultivate. We had a basically a munitions industry that we turned into a fertilizer industry or the ammonium nitrate, right? Because it was Haber Bosch designed it for munitions. We then use it for fertilizer. We had a biological warfare activity. We said, no, we're not going to kill people. We'll kill insects instead. So that's our whole bio side sort of, you know, um, thing. And we basically in the last 80 years just gone full bore chemical industrial impacts on the land and yeah we basically oxidized 50 percent of the carbon from our 1.5 billion hectares of cropping land you know we're just burning off carbon and yeah we're ending up with Syria's where they burned off all their carbon lost its water holding capacity lost its productivity peasants walking off to Damascus social crisis collapse I, yeah sure but that's i mean maybe i'm misunderstanding this um slightly but surely that's also i mean 
you know the the the, the global heating, which I understand is is related to the hydrology or caused by the yeah. hydrology. It's also you know the peak oil, the fact that Syria hit peak oil a while back, and we do tend to. Well, no, no, agree. It's all compound. Yeah. In fact, the, the bottom line is that look, if we don't have healthy biosystem, mm. we don't have healthy functioning land biosystems, we can't sustain life. You know that's basic fundamental for life but we can't sustain economies either, right? Mm. And well, Jared Diamond collapse, 23 civilizations, and we all see them in the archeology, span the dust of archeology, span right? Yeah. Yeah. Because they've all basically oxidized their carbon from their soils, you know, degraded their water, and then of course, no food collapse. Yeah. President Roosevelt said it in the Dust Bowl, a nation that destroys its soil, destroys itself. And that's what we're doing. So we're halfway through that different areas at different stages, depending on the legacy or how rich their soils was initially, America, Europe, particularly favorable because they're these exquisitely fertile glaciated soils, right? Soils that have been glaciated, but basically, um, yeah, we're, we're halfway through that currency. The UN will make the point. We've got 60 harvest max left on the planet. 60. 60. Unless, well, yeah. Unless we regenerate. Yes, unless we fundamentally change because the rate of, okay, every harvest, every year, we are losing five to 10 tons of carbon yeah. per hectare per annum from those soils, oxidizing. That's what causing the most, or now fossil fuels is adding a lot to it, but before that, that was what was causing the CO2 increase, the oxidation of carbon from the soils. But we can keep the carbon and the water in the soil um, as through regenerative agriculture uh, while still harvesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can reverse it while still have, yeah, we can, we can reverse it all as nature did in creating the biosystems, right? Mm. It's just, it's this balance of exactly with photosynthesis, and then burning or fungi. Which one do you want, right? I, I suppose I just I don't know enough about soil to understand how we could till, for example, or how we could um, produce crops, yep, but, essentially. Okay. You answered the question itself. Uh, the, does nature till? Uh, degradation, yeah. See, that's the point. Like, yeah. I mean, no, no, look, she doesn't till. She, you, you just... Well, and this is a whole innovative agriculture, zero till, right? So you don't need to till, you just need good soil structure. Instead of trying to create it artificially through oil-based energy and machines, right. we could create that through roots and microbes as nature does, right. far better. Right. Look, the proof is very simple. Like, um, let me take your neighbors, the Dutch, right? The Dutch are now the second, uh, they have the second largest agricultural export industry in terms of value, right? Second largest globally. And of course they've got basically no land, right? So what yeah. they do is that toxic saline slime from the bottom of the Rhine river, you know, all the pollutants from Switzerland and Germany, and they'll create polder soils. They'll go through an accelerated, you know, soil regeneration process. And with 10 years, they're growing tulips. And 15 years, they're growing vegetables that they're exporting to England and the world. Mm. 
You see, so yes, we can do that. I mean, there's a nation just excellent doing it. I mean, they're doing it all for money mm. rather than, yeah, but they're using soil pedogenesis, the regeneration of soils to drive that. Just so, as nature. So how much um, land would we need? Obviously, the goal would be, you know, you have 100% uh, land use of regenerative yeah. agriculture. Uh, but how yeah. much land, what, what's the minimum percentage that we need to hit? Can it feed look, everybody? Beautiful question. And, and look, there's 40 billion hectares of land, okay, over the last sort of 6,000 years, but particularly the last three, 400 We've now created lots of wasteland. We have 5 billion mm. hectares of man-made desert and wasteland. Good God. Roughly 40%. Right. Okay. 5 billion hectares. And on the rest of the cropping land, we've basically degraded 50% of that. These are UN figures, right? There were 8 billion hectares of primary forest 6,000 years ago. We've got 3.5 billion left, right? So we've deforested, again, two-thirds of the forest. We burn 10% of our residual forest every year in wildfires. More emissions of CO2 than all our fossil fuel use. But we've never accounted for it because he said, hey, that's Mother Nature's problems. You know, it's her wildfires. It's not yeah. ours, right? Yeah, yeah. Externalization again and again and again. Okay, so that's the, that's the scale of the mess. But no, I mean, obviously I can't be absolutely certain because we haven't done it. But no, if we basically take 10% of each of those systems and regenerate 10% of those systems, then we should be able to cool the planet and restabilize carbon and restabilize food biosystems. Okay? And this, I, I mean, let's get into details. Mm -hmm. uh, we do a lot of work in India, in Andhra Pradesh, with Vijay Kumar, who's a very innovative. But the big one there is there's a million poor women farmers, right? These are women farming one acre or whatever, and Vijay's been working with them for the last five years and really instituted a really powerful thing called zero-budget natural farming, right? Really a massive revolution in restoring natural farming systems. And basically out of that, we can go back into arid areas, you know, some of that 5 billion hectares of desert wasteland. And yet, I have no hesitation. Technically, we could re-green 1 billion hectares of green landscape from those desert areas, rebuild savanna grasslands, agroforests, and that would be a massive effect both on carbon, but more importantly in hydrology, and natural safe cooling. And, and all of this is highly profitable, right? I mean, it's all, I mean, you need seed money, but the dividends socially, financially, economically, strategically enormous. Yeah, there's huge barriers though to that as well. I mean, the amount of land management companies that have cropped up in the past decade that are sort of tackling climate change but really are funded by some of the, you know, the top five food companies that are essentially trying to get their hands exclusively on resources and saying, oh, yeah. you can yeah. plant cacao and you can plant soya and you can, no, it's really, no, it's absolutely fine because we're just going to tell you yeah. how to do it sustainably. Nonsense. Look, totally, Michelle, we, we've got some real dangers in exactly that space, right? Here's the science, but now we've got entrepreneurs coming in and saying, hey, I can, 
buy land, I can speculate on land. Yeah. You've got China saying I can buy out in um, parts of Africa and repeat British colonialism from the 19th century, or yeah, 18th century, right? Yes, you've all got those sorts of situations. And yes, yeah, so often the motives aren't clear. Now, particularly because Paris, we had a big win, COP21, you know, like zero carbon, I mean, net zero carbon. And now there's a massive move globally on carbon offsets, right? So a lot of these people are talking up carbon offsets. Mm -hmm. I can keep using fossil fuels because I'm going to grow carbon offsets to offset them. And I mean, it's totally valid if it was done genuinely, but half the stuff becomes shonks and false accounting. So there's a lot of scams in that game going to happen. This is funnily enough, um, the exact focus of my investigations at the moment. And yeah. last week I got news of three such scams in Papua yeah. New Guinea alone. Three yeah. in a week. I mean, it is an unregulated market and speculative, exploitative opportunists are moving in to make totally. their money before the UN figures out exactly how to regulate it. Yeah. Well, look, let me tell you the history of that. I mean, like, because it's, it all happened in the last five years. Okay. We, mm. we had a big win in Paris, Christina Pagouris, and really, you know, championing that whole zero net, right. And very good, very progressive because that and should have forced us to uh, internalize the externalities, right. So we were mm. doing proper accounting. And all the externalities should have come onto the balance sheet. Everybody has to now come clean, right? Mm. And so that was the agreement in Paris, but then they had three cops afterward where they were supposed to codify the standards, the methodologies, the agreements for the accounting. And they just fudged and deliberately, you know, they just fudged and fudged and fudged yeah. and couldn't come. And in Poland, basically, they came to the conclusion that right? That was a COP, what was it? COP 24, 25, right? They came to the conclusion to say, well, look, we can't get agreement. Every nation can have their own carbon accounting systems. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Putin, right? Like, I mean, you know, <laughs> you understand it? It's, it's disgusting. That's what, I, that's what we're getting at with the politics, right? So it's, it's deliberately, we, we achieved a milestone in Paris. Real passion, genuine uh, intent, but then the next four cops just eroded it to the extent that basically, well, COP26, Glasgow, you know, three months ago, there's Australia up there being sponsored by a gas company. You know, like Australia's contribution to COP was being sponsored by a gas company. Well, come on. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is politics, right? Sure. Um, and... I think best to start taking the evidence that we have at face value of the nature of politics and of the money behind politics rather than keeping protesting in the streets and knocking on the doors and saying, please change, please change. Look, I agree, but yes, I agree, but also in a really serious way, Michelle, um, we're running out of time, right? Like yeah. we've, this nature, we've got the solutions. Yes, we can do it. But no, we only have 10 years at max because then these dangerous hydrological extremes, wildfires, for example, will start impacting. So California's burning, British Columbia's burning, Portugal's burning, Greece is burning, yeah. Siberia's burning, right? Yeah. And we're losing 10% of our 
residual forest every year now through burning. Yeah. Now we've got to turn that around. Otherwise, literally, we don't have forests. If we don't have forests, we have the whole hydrology. You know, we have cascading collapses from that, right? Yeah. So we're really, uh, I mean, yes, we've been playing this sort of self-interested politics game, but see now things are coming unstuck because they're realizing that, yeah, nation up to nations, they're heading to the Syrian situation, right? I don't know. Uh, you know, we see so much like in Malaysia, for example, um, yeah. in the state of Sarawak, which had, you know, Borneo had one of the world's most yeah. amazing yeah. primary yeah. rainforests. Yeah. Uh, you know, 80 percent. And the, the last time this was studied was in 2011 and logging has been rampant since. But yeah. in 2011, 80 uh, percent of uh, Borneo's forests had been impacted by logging. Yeah. Even in the past year, I mean, the amount of floods that have hit the people of yep. Sarawak and Sabah it is just, it is constant. I mean, villages are being washed away, people are dying, and you have their politicians saying it's an act of God, saying it's no, it's nothing to do with logging, ignoring the scientists, ignoring the academics, yep. and shutting down publications that actually speak about the truth. So, yeah, maybe some people around the world are waking up to it, but. But look, that, yes, they're just repeating exactly the narrative, the, you know, the talking notes from the West for the last 50 years, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, but I mean, the way the changes, I mean, there's a case in point, I mean, the Americans had Trump, which was a you know, disaster, but Biden comes in and he, he recognizes the Department of Defense recognized they put $200 billion. We've got to do something. They've launched all this resilience activity, but whether that will be enough, fast enough, whether the money will be used wisely or just more quangos and overheads, we don't know yet, right? Mm. But certainly they're recognizing, look, yes, we've got to build this resilience because if not, yeah, California's burning, Southwest US is aridifying, you know, it's just, it's just falling apart. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, maybe we'll see. Maybe. I mean, the it's funny, isn't it? Because the West, quote unquote, um, is very powerful in very many senses, especially uh, military wise, but very small. I mean, the amount of land that we actually manage now, um, it's very, very uh, small when you've got places like, you know, India and China and these huge yeah. Asian countries that. No, no, fair enough. I mean, but the point is. <laughs> Yeah, again, this is nature. Uh, nature didn't worry about how big is my continents. Mm. She said, look, every square foot of land, is it degrading or is it regenerating? Is it sure. growing plants? So really, we have agency on the land that we stand on, right? Yeah. The stuff in our hands. And here are the processes. So yeah, you get fungi, you got plants, you got everything. So you can regenerate at any scale, one of the biggest hopes, and I spent a lot of time and really quite enthused, is urban agriculture, young people in cities, you know, 70%, 80% will be in these concentration camps we call cities. And can okay. we empower them to basically take autonomy and, you know, responsibility, but also empowerment to then say, look, here's nutritious food from our cycled organic waste, right? And can we really rebuild that vibrant urban agricultural movement? 
globally. How much square footage meters um, can somebody feed themselves with using urban I, agriculture? I mean, okay, well, look, we should talk about detail, but no, I can, I'll give you the technologies yeah. and cycling thing. You could live up four square meters or four cubic meters of healthy soil. That's not a lot. Four. Yeah. Just say make it twice the size of your bed. Yeah. What, one person, a family? Yeah. Yeah. One person. Yeah. yeah. Mm, okay. Your, I mean, it'll grow enough of your green food, nutritious green food. It may not grow all of your starches and all your grains because it's a different system, but you could live off potatoes if you had to. Mm. <laughs> okay. And then the question you need about a hundred grams of protein per person per day. So if you could integrate some chickens and stuff with other people on that sort of square area, cycling the waste organic matter, you know, the, the kitchen scraps and the green leaf coming off, you could cycle that all into eggs or milk and there's your protein, right? Hmm. So we, we can know it's exciting. We could design viable autonomous life support system for urban habitats, young people on that sort of ratio of land to people, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't have land, you can do that vertically. You can do that in all sorts of uh, interesting ways. That's very interesting to hear because I had Jason Bradford on the show. Um, he was talking about transforming food systems. And he was saying, you know, you have to get out of the city pretty much because, you know, the food systems are going to collapse and people won't have access to what they need. And, you know, this urban agriculture is sort of, a bit, well, I don't think he said this um, to be completely fair to him. But what I got from it a little bit was like, it's a bit of a pipe dream. Yes, but actually on, on another, I mean, yes, there's a good debate. And of course, it's not going to happen instantly. There's all the smarts, innovation. Like we're in Australia, very dry continent. We've got mm. these wicking bags, growing systems, 10 times water use efficiency compared to what conventional things. Wow. We can build all these nutrient cycles. But see, on another level, going up higher nature, see, cities are actually gold mines, right? Because when you think of it, that's where all the people are. Mm -hmm. They're consuming all this food. So they're the sink for all these nutrients. Mm -hmm from the countryside coming into the city to feed the people, right? Mm -hmm. And those nutrients then get excreted, obviously. And then mostly in history, they've caused pandemics, pollution and pandemics, right? Cholera, et cetera, typhoid, because everyone's living in muck. Mm. But if we, we can cycle them very, very efficiently, like a rainforest, mm -hmm. and no, then we can sustain very high viable communities very high quality, ecologically ethical systems, but we can do that. Yeah. With the efficiency of rainforests and uh, it's beautiful. This is interesting then. Does that mean that we would have to change our, our waste system as well in cities? Ideally. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, there's a, hey, you, no, absolutely. Rachel, because it's, it's, as I said, it's a gold mine. It's not yeah. a waste system. See, so you're going to have to entrepreneurially sort of say, <laughs> give me your goal, right? You might even pay me to take it away. But I'm going to turn it, I see, and that's the point. There's all the organic waste. I yeah. can turn into compost, into new soil. Yeah. Like the Dutch, you know, your friends the Dutch are doing with the polder soil. Yeah. It's stinks, toxic saline slime from the bottom of the Rhine. So they're taking all this waste, making these beautiful soils. Yeah. And 
basically you're also getting all those nutrients and you're saying, I'm cycling those nutrients. I did some work way, way back when I was younger in the seventies, uh, in a place called Fraser Island, which is a sand dune, but it supports rainforests. So you've got this paradox, you know, how's the world's most productive terrestrial ecosystem growing on basically no nutrients at all, effectively crushed glass, you know, just sand. And of course, why and how it, because every molecule of phosphorus is cycling 10,000 times faster because it's very healthy microbial cycling mm. compared to what an agricultural soil is. So what we're saying is we can create bioproductivities through these microbial ecologies, cycling efficiency, and you can do that in cities. Mm. It's all, it's all very exciting, isn't it? Cause it, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's a exciting. kind of mix of like, um, uh, sci-fi you know progress which we all love and um, but then yeah, actually still getting back to the roots of what we actually yeah, need rather than sending people to mars exactly see what well, we've got to look at it this way there's no nutrients have left this planet for 4.6 billion years right still all here and it's just a case of are we leaving it inert you know polluted deposits or are we actually got it in a life cycle uh efficiently cycling in nature is really the anti-entropy sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everything gets wasted and dissipated, but nature, plants, microbial ecology brings it all together and enhances cycling and efficiencies and is actually the anti-entropy process on this planet. And what we're doing is, this comes back to the thing is there's life and death. Well, this process is actually the anti-entropy thing that makes the planet blossom. Mm. All right. All right. I'm just thinking back to um, all of the, I, I get emails sometimes from my guests, previous sort of guests. Yeah. Well, as whenever I speak, especially the physicists, whenever I speak about entropy or any, or, or thermodynamics, I get corrected very, very quickly. That's just them trying to say, look, we're the experts here. We <laughs> oh, I greatly appreciate that hugely. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. But the whole urban agriculture comes down to that. No, we are responsible, right? I mean, yes, mm. all this heavy stuff, responsibility. No, but we are also enormously responsible, right? Yeah. You can convert the area of your bed into a living green microcosm. If you had two beds, you could go to space indefinitely living off that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Understood. Understood. I think uh, one one thing I would like to touch on then would be, could you just explain how the hydrology and how this regenerative agriculture could cool the earth? Because something that yep. I've heard from uh, yep. other climate scientists is that uh, cool, cooling's fine or whatever, but ultimately with the amount of damage that we've done already, the amount of GHGs, the greenhouse gases that have been yep. produced, nothing can be done now. We are, we are on our way to yep. smashing way past 1.5. They're right. Look, they're right if they're in the carbon context that the IPCC has, you know, defined mm. it as in the last. Because we look, okay, the oceans cover 71% of the planet, 4,000 meters deep. They hold 38,000 billion tons of dissolved carbon in their water, right? 38,000 billion. Okay, the atmosphere holds 750 billion tons of carbon. 
a CO2 in the atmosphere, right? Mm -hmm. So that's 50 times more carbon in the ocean than the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So you're now saying, oh, if we can reduce carbon in the atmosphere through all the valiant efforts by changing our fossil fuel use, deluding ourselves that we're going to change the balance of carbon in there. No, because the minute we take carbon out of the atmosphere, the ocean will simply burp and re-equilibrate some of that 38,000 billion tons back into the air, right? It's an enormous buffered system. It's taken us hundreds of years, thousands of years, you know, of buffering. We've only seen a fraction of that. We can't, look, we can't control this through carbon, you know, through atmospheric carbon quantities, right? Mm. The only way we can do it is putting carbon into the sponge mm. to get that hydrological force multiplier, the 20 fold plus multiplier. But here's a sweet spot. It's much better than that. 95% of the heat dynamics of the blue planet, for the last 4.2 billion years has been driven by water. The CO2 component of the greenhouse effect, even with the elevation, does less than 4% of that heat dynamics. So we've constrained ourselves to, you know, levering and playing around with 4% and nature plays at 95%. So the, the magnitude of the, you know, the power, but also the buffering is exquisitely different, right? So how does nature cool the planet? When you've got a tree or green grass, anything green, it's transpiring water, right? You know, it, it's taking water from the soil and putting it up into the atmosphere, transpiration. And every gram of water that's transpired has to go from a liquid into a gas to do that. And to do that, it needs to have latent heat, you know, to do that heat convert or to that phase conversion. It needs 590 calories of heat energy to turn a gram of water from liquid to gas. So it has to take that heat from the surface to change that water phase. Mm -hmm. And it takes that up into the upper atmosphere and then largely out to space. That cools the planet because you're needing all that heat. Yeah. Okay. That cools the planet. And we've got, I live in Canberra. It's an urban forest. It's an artificial city. It was created as an urban forest. It's 10 degrees centigrade cooler on a summer's day, 40 degree day under this urban forest where I live compared to the concrete suburb three kilometers away, 10 degrees cooler. So there's natural air conditioning. This transpiration is taking in total on the planetary basis, 24% of the incident solar radiation from the sun that the earth gets, and it's taking 24% of it back up into the air out to space. Out to space, that just sounds, it just sounds. Well, it's just, it's no big. <laughs> it gets energy and it, it emits, it retransmits energy, right? Okay. It's just an energy balance, right? Yeah. So 24% of the energy balance is driven by this hydrological process. Now we've already agreed because all the forest cutting, we're now doing that with half the green on this planet that we had 8,000 years ago. We're running it on 50% of the residual green is doing 24%, but it gets much better than that. When that water, I mean, it's a bit more complicated, but just keep it simple. When that water goes into the air, 
it'll form clouds, right? Mm-hmm. It condenses to form, you know, clouds. And the clouds are very reflective. They reflect incident solar radiation yeah. directly back at the space before it even gets to the planet. Yeah. 50% of the planet was always covered with clouds. Mostly it still is. And those clouds reflect 33% of the incident solar radiation directly back out to space. So a cloud comes over your area, you have to put on a jumper. It's cooler. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's clouds. There's another hydrological dynamic mm-hmm. that we can control. Mm-hmm. Now, the next stage is how do those clouds form rain? And this painting behind me is actually, I mean, I won't go into detail, but that's really bacteria from forests that act as precipitation nuclei to coalesce millions of cloud droplets into a raindrop that's heavy enough to fall out of the sky. So over 50% of the rain on this planet is actually microbially driven, biologically driven. Okay. And so these forests create rain, right? But the point is that that's the rain that recharges the sponge and that allows this whole hydrological cooling system to go. And then there's one other really powerful thing coming to your friends who say it's too late, too late. It's not too late. Okay. When we've got a sponge and we've got water in the soil and we've got green vegetation on the soil, that's in a sense, protecting the soil, right? Mm -hmm. From eating and a green protected vegetated soil really gets above 20 degrees centigrade because of these cooling effects and, sh- you know, shading effects. Mm. You measure it and we do the citizen science. It's very clear, really above 20 degrees. Contrasting that if you look at the pavement or asphalt or bare degraded soil, it absorbs heat and it can heat up to over 70 degrees centigrade, right? And again, all these measures are there. No question. And see, there's a simple rule of physics. I mean, it's a law of physics, a bit like Einstein, right? It's called the Stefan-Boltzmann law of physics, which means the amount of re-radiation coming from any surface is proportional to the temperature of that surface, right? Mm -hmm. The hotter the surface, the more it re-radiates. It's a bit like a stove. The hotter the stove, (laughs) the more it's it's the same. Makes sense. Yeah. And, and the equation, I mean, I want to give you the equation. The amount of re-radiation is the fourth power of the temperature in degrees Kelvin. Now, that means temperature times temperature times temperature times temperature. Yeah. So the amount of heat being re-radiated by a bare, dry, hot surface is massively greater mm. than a cool, green, cooler surface at 20 degrees. Right. That's all preamble. Now, the punchline is this, Rochelle, the greenhouse effect on this planet, natural and enhanced, is governed by two factors. See, nature's so simple, so elegant, she's beautiful. Two factors. The first is the amount of heat going up, the amount of re-radiation going up, right? Mm -hmm. And the second factor is what percentage of that re-radiation is absorbed by greenhouse gases in the air Mm -hmm. to prevent escaping to space. Right. Okay, think of two things. Is heat going up to space? And then we've got this blanket that's sort of slowing it down, right? Mm-hmm. But if we can keep land surfaces protected and shaded and moist and cooler, 
we can turn down the amount of re-radiation. Right. Just that we can turn down the stove that's driving greenhouse warming. Yeah. We can turn the stove from ultra high to simmer. We can do that within a matter of two, three weeks. How long does it take for grass to grow from a soil? Wow. So we can turn down the greenhouse effect, not by trying to change the CO2 in the air, but simply by keeping land systems protected, shaded, moist and cool. Fantastic. Okay? Because it doesn't matter how many CO2 molecules are in the air, if there's no heat or much less heat coming up, there's nothing to absorb. Right. Gotcha. See? And, yeah. and this, is, like, this is now going to the start of our conversation. It's just changing the context. Yeah. You know, just changing the way we think and start of saying, oh, we've got a problem. We've got too many CO2 molecules up in the air. Of course we have. Yes, they're greenhouse gas. Yes, they absorb things. We've beaten ourselves up for 50 years to say, oh, we've got to stop this. We've got to stop all fossil fuel use, et cetera, et cetera. The physics is telling us, that, no, that's not good enough because the ocean mm. buffering, 38,000 billion tonnes, it'll take thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years for that to have any effect. Yeah. We're already at 1.1 degree warming. We can't go to 1.5, but within three weeks, you can turn down the greenhouse effect by just keeping things green, protected, cool. But see, it's interesting. Look, when you simply say that to all the chemists and physicists, and scientists on the planet, oh, they say, oh, well, we've never considered that. Hmm. They don't say it's wrong. They know it's right because it's fundamental of laws of the earth, right? It's, it's fundamental physics. They don't dispute that, but they've never considered it because the context has always been, oh, we've looked at the problem as a CO2 gas problem. Mm -hmm. We've never looked at it as a system. What governs the heat dynamics? And where do we have agency hydrologically? Yes. So you regreening your balcony or whatever you've got, hey, that's, you have power, you have agency, you are important. So 10%, regenerating 10% of our food system, current food systems uh, could cool uh, the planet. Regreening, regreening 10% of the planet in these different, um, yeah, you know, deserts and forests and stuff right. like that. We collectively, we could put enough hydrological cooling within 10 years to bring the climate back to pre, pre uh, greenhouse crisis levels. Pre-crisis level. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. What, what do you want? If you want, okay, we'll bring it down to 0.5 degree warming, you know, so you have a more milder climate in Britain that can enjoy your summers with no danger. <laughs> That's okay. And in doing so, and I mean, the food thing's a little bit, I mean, it's the same story, but in food thing, yeah, we, we don't need 10%. If we had 0.1% of the land intelligently in urban agriculture situation, we could feed the planet. 0.1%. That, that sort of order, you know, because right, okay. 14 billion hectares of land. So we don't need much, you know, we, yeah. well, as I said, you could feed yourself on four square meters. Yeah. So yeah, no trouble. The Dutch see what, look at the Dutch are doing. 
they've got very, very little land and they're second biggest food exporter. So, I mean, why isn't this getting talked about more? Well, that's why, why hasn't Rachel made the program before? Mm. That's where we started, isn't it? Because there's a status quo, we are herd mentality, you know, like basically the earth was flat, you know, the, the sun rolled around the earth. Mm. They had to sort of nearly shoot the guy or we kill the guy who said that, no, 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 the earth goes around the sun. Right. I mean, like we, we are very dogmatically fixed in our own hierarchies, you know, egos, etc., systems. And yeah, we don't accept change. You know, the inertia to change, the inertia to relook innovatively, creatively is enormous. So by definition, you've always had the innovators. You've always had the um, Van Goghs and painters and stuff like that. And they say, hey, look at that guy. He can't even draw a straight line. Yeah. You see, and so it's always really, yeah, where is the challenge? Where's the innovation? Where's the truth? And yeah, basically, by definition, you know, like, the status quo doesn't innovate. Innovate always comes from the 1% or less who put new options and then the logic, but often the logic doesn't get accepted. They get you know, stoned to death, but then soon afterwards, you know, then the weeds come up and <laughs> who knows? Yeah. All but right. yeah, you, but you are the change. You see, it is all about not me, science. I mean, yeah, here's all the evidence and stuff like that, but how do we communicate? and empower youth globally to do that. Well, not even globally, because they are disempowered. So how do we, you take, yeah, look, how, how do you take that informed youth with agency, you know, in our world, and how do we get that message across to say, no, no, it's in your hands. Your future's in your hands. Here's nature's tools. Let's broadcast that message. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So look, uh, have a look through your tapes and stuff, what you recorded. Um, if there's any points of questions or case studies or numbers, or you want to get into physics a bit more, uh, you know, happy to fill in. It's valid to say, look, I've been staying this for 10 years more and not once has a physicist or scientist, you know, rejected any of it except to say, oh, that's out of our context. You know, that that's outside of the, definition it's outside of the funding parameters that we and the the way the problem has been given to us right mm. and that's valid because they've been funded to do that job and therefore they yeah they well they want the money therefore they comply with the funding requirements they don't think beyond it mm. yeah all right understood understood um i will link everybody to your website um, so that they can go yeah. through research. If you, uh, I mean, yes, good. Uh, we don't necessarily have as much on the website as I'd like. You know, there's a lot of them because we also, we're just a charity, you know, we, we, yeah. we are unfunded. So basically, yeah, but look, raise the debate, raise the questions. Um, mm. There's some of the information on our website, but no, look, there's a lot actually documented. So if you need then references and case studies and others, it's not all on our website, but certainly I can back you up on anything. Yeah, I would. I would love a couple of case studies. I'd love to be able to to link to them uh, for people to see. <laughs> they're they're exquisite. You know, they on on everything, every piece. Yes, it's all confirmed. It's all documented, yeah. and uh, but you've just got to explain that 
that natural phenomena in mm-hmm. terms of the context, right? Sure, 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 sure. I'm also thinking, um, uh, I think whatever you send me, I will send on to Tim Garrett, who's an atmospheric scientist, and Anastasia yeah. Makarieva, who's a theoretical yeah. physicist who's working on yeah. the biotic pump theory. Yeah, um, no, no, no. But, uh, see, again, classic, there was a classic situation. For years, they tried to get that biotic pump discussion published, and the journal said, no, 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 yeah. this is outside of the status quo. Yeah. Finally, bravery, and they had to put a disclaimer. They sort of said, we're publishing this just to foster debate, but we, we don't don't put our neck in the noose in case it's wrong, right? Yeah. Classic. Shocking, shocking though. Although they did, they recently got prop, properly, properly published. It's done. Um, yeah. And the dissenters have kind of and snuck of away with the tail between the their legs. Is actually the microbial process that drives that biotic pump in the Amazon. You see, the Amazon has... Yeah times of rainfall that occurs daily compared to the water coming in from the Atlantic Ocean and the water flowing back out to the Atlantic. So the internal rainfall is seven times because every day that water is transpired, it is then nucleated by these microbial nuclei, precipitates again that afternoon. So it's the water cycle, and this is one of the force multipliers we talked about, right? Mm. It's not the quantity, it's the actual quality of the cycles. Amazing. My final question, who would you like to platform? Yeah, yeah. look, okay, there's not one sort of person because we've covered so many wider areas, but certainly I would argue my colleague Vijay Kumar, India, one million women farmers, but now Modi, the Indian prime minister, very significantly has said, look, this natural farming is really India's uh, future, mm-hmm. totally right across India, beyond the green revolution. Wow. Okay. In the 60s, we had the green industrial agriculture, green revolution, right? More on fertilizer, more on biocides, more on energy. And they've more or less switched it and sort of said, no, we're going back now to natural farming. They've, they haven't got the money for it. And the people are just dying, suicides, toxics. Mm. But they've also gone, because India's 1.4 billion people, they've also gone to Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations. And Antonio, of course, came up, we need these natural climate solutions. You know, he came big deal on that last year. And so that was based on Modi's thing. So Vijay... Uh, it's demonstrated, well, the, the million ladies farmers have demonstrated, BJ's put it together. I've backed up the science, science of that. Modi's taking it forward. Antonio Guterres is sort of playing it in the United Nations, right? So, um, yeah, but each of those links, I mean, that's a nice story that really, because that really gets to scale, yeah. but it really gets to the whole social empowerment, right? Yeah. They're getting. Three times the yield, three times the yield, but also they're really revitaling social equity, right? Because these are now what was previously very, very undernourished, really starved, exploited, enslaved people are now being re-empowered. Yeah. And well, they're, no, 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 hang on. Sorry. They're not being re-empowered. They are re-empowering themselves, right? It's there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the nature of empowerment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Walter, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Very happy and keen to help.
Thank you. I'm 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 so happy to have had you on the show, and my listeners are going to be so thrilled. Honestly, every week, every week for about uh, two and a half months, I've had people contacting me asking for me to interview you. You have to get Walter on. You have to get Walter on. So thank you very much for taking the time. All the best. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about Walter's work, I've put links over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it and you want access to the interview transcripts, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. A huge thank you to the Planet Critical supporters. This work just wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.